This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. David Granite, and welcome to Health Matters. Well, all of us eat, and we eat several times a day, and sometimes we don't eat the foods that we should, and sometimes our weight gets out of control, and that can affect our health. All of us probably could learn how to eat better. All of us can learn how to avoid some of the things that we do, even unconsciously. Well, how do we learn how to do that? How do we, how do we get bad habits in the first place? To get us through all of this, we have an expert with us, Carrie Boutel. Carrie is a professor of pediatrics and psychiatry and is a real doctor with a PhD, uh, as we like to say, because those of us with MDs aren't, aren't really doctors that way, uh, and director of the Center for Healthy Eating. I'm reading it to make sure I get it right. Healthy Eating um, Activity Research. Yep. Cheer. Cheer. What a great name. Mm-hmm. Thanks. <laughs> Welcome. Thanks. Um, so, you know, when, when we talk about eating, uh, it's something we all do all the time, and there's so much that goes into choices of food and how we eat and what eating means to us, that it's almost a, 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 an enormous topic to get involved with, but something that we all have to get, I, I think, wrap our head around to be healthy. Mm-hmm. So how, how does this all start when, when we learn to eat and, and what are kids learning as they learn to eat that we don't even realize they're learning as we go along? So that is a really tricky question because that would suggest that there's one thing that teaches children to eat certain foods. Um, Our brains are already primed to like certain flavors, like sweet and salty. We were just talking about sugar. Um, And then our parents come in and give us certain foods, and some kids have certain taste preferences and other ones don't. And ultimately, that's how the whole thing comes together as a small child. But then they're exposed to the world. So then they're exposed to TV commercials, you know, media, things like vending machines, uh, as I said, commercials and movies. And so children are exposed to more and more each day. And so ultimately their eating evolves over time as a, as a interaction of their biology, their home environment, and their ultimate outside environment. So when you wake up one day and you're an adult and you find yourself, like I do sometimes, standing there eating a bag of potato chips without even realizing I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is that something that comes truly from a habit that I learned at a younger age? Is that, is that you know, a progression? Or is it just me you know, eating? So I wish it was that simple. And in our group, we've started to try to dissect eating in so many words. And so part of what we study is something called cue reactivity. And so there are parts of your brain, so I'm going to take a step back for a second. There are parts of your brain that um, play a role in obesity, binge eating, and overeating. And I can define those in a second. Yeah, well, let, I mean, let's talk about it. Because okay. I think this also goes back to just regular eating, too. Yep. Yep, exactly. Okay, so um, the the because eventually the uh, obesity and binge eating and, and the other things that you're talking about, we have to get to. So why don't we start now and, and and go ahead and start defining them for us to make sure we have we know what we're talking about. Okay, so people eat for a variety of reasons, and one of the reasons you eat is because you're physically hungry and you need calories to get through your day, to be able to burn, to be able to do all your daily activities. That's not what we study. We study eating past nutritional needs. So in that group of categories, you have overeating, which is just when you eat too much um, infrequently. Um, There's binge eating, when you eat too much and you feel out of control. And binge eating is associated with things like um, like higher levels of depression, higher levels of medical comorbidities, 
difficulty losing weight, all kinds of things like that. And then within those two, overeating and binge eating, there's, been, there's binge eating disorder, which is even further extreme, which is a full-blown eating disorder and now has its own diagnostic category in the DSM, et cetera. Um, we study overeating and binge eating. Um, and so ultimately, we're looking to try to help people not eat past nutritional needs. What percent of Americans fall into the category of that they, they overeat or they're obese? So, overweight and obesity accounts for about two-thirds of Americans today. And, and, I mean, because it seems to me overeating, all of us do at some point. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you back away from the Thanksgiving table. Oh, you know, I just ate so much. But that's not what you're talking about, right? Or, or is so it partially? So, that is partially what we're talking about, doing that more often. So if you do that once in a while, your weight's not going to change. And ultimately, the epidemiological data suggests that overeating is probably one of the main drivers of why we have such an obesity epidemic. Um, physical activity certainly plays a role, but the best way to lose weight is by reducing caloric intake, and physical activity is thought to ultimately maintain weight loss. And so it's this increase and decrease in caloric intake, and it could be as small as 200 calories a day that what? could really make a very big difference. And so, again, we study overeating and then binge eating, which happens more frequently um, in our lab, at least to try to understand why someone would eat when they're not physically hungry. So what, with all the work that you've done, why do people eat when they're not physically hungry? Well, if I had that answer, I think I'd be famous. <laughs> you are famous. So, yeah, it's... But, um, but there are lots of reasons, and there are different researchers studying different areas. So, so one of the things we study in my lab is emotional eating. But the, another piece of, of overeating that we study is something called uh, Q-reactivity. So um, when you look at the neurobiological research on overeating and obesity and binge eating, there are two main areas of your brain that are essentially um, associated with eating past nutritional needs, we think. Um, one that's based in reward, which means how good something feels, and the other one that's based in inhibition, means stopping yourself from finishing eating that potato chip. Gotcha. Um, and so those two things interact, and dopamine um, plays a very strong role in these areas of the brain. So what we think happens is that over time, there are a number of cues in your environment. And when I say cues, it could be anything from a billboard showing you a milkshake to um, sitting on the couch at 10 o'clock every night having a brownie, um, to, <laughs> to your neighbor bringing you dinner because you're sick, um, could be work parties, could be walking past a candy bowl. Um, so cues can be visual, they can be smell, they can be emotional, they can be time, they can be all those things. And, and, and you know, when you say a cue, to me that's um, something that was almost trained. Mm-hmm. So that's exactly what we think happens, is that these two areas of the brain become hypersensitized in people that are vulnerable. So not all Americans are vulnerable, but there are people that are vulnerable to this and that over time these cues become associated with food. So that your brain becomes what we call hypersensitized, these dopamine areas, and it starts to grab your attention and makes you want it. I think all of us in high school may have heard about Pavlov. Uh -huh. The bell yep. rings, the dog salivates. Yep, exactly. Uh, it, that's, that's what you're talking about. Yes. That it's Associative conditioning, Pavlovian conditioning. 
So um, I think about how when I was a kid growing up, my mother's going to kill me. But when I was a kid growing up, um, at the, if I did a good job with dinner, I could have the reward, mm -hmm. which was dessert. Mm -hmm. And it was ice cream or it was chocolate or it was something, you know, sugary. Mm -hmm. And so I started to think of that as the reward mm -hmm. for doing well. And to this day, I love having chocolate, you know, at the end of the and, and, and even at the end of my busy clinic day, I'm my, my I got a piece of chocolate waiting for me because I love having a little bit of chocolate. Mm -hmm. I mean, have I been conditioned? You for, have. So the, the, the all of us, I think have at least some of that that goes on. Well, exactly. But it's where it creates a physiological difficulty and emotional difficulty that it becomes problematic. So I think almost everybody, except for a few exceptions, overeats at some level. Um, and so all of us do it, and all of us have had cue-induced learning in so many words, and all of our brains have some sensitization. It's just people that fall in the more extreme areas tend to eat when they're not physically hungry. And then there's another piece to this, if I can add, that some people say that they feel hungry all the time. Hmm. And I often wonder if that's this kind of arousal that occurs when you see the cues that happens to them all the time. So they feel hungry, but they're not physically hungry. They just want food. Um, not to throw one company under the bus, but it's so <laughs> ubiquitous. I, I think I drive by the Golden Arches. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, 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 the Golden Arches themselves eventually become a cue. Yep. Uh, and so they, they, they've, you've been trained since you were a little kid. You can you see the arches, you start smelling hamburgers and french fries. Even talking about this makes me think about their french fries and their chocolate milkshake, which is what I had as a kid. Yeah. I can still remember that taste. So, so, so it's worked. I mean, they're, they're, they're in, if I am working for those companies, mm -hmm. I am intentionally trying to create those cues. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's how you sell product. And, and we understand that uh, as part of it. So, um, so people get cues, and it can be all sorts of different cues from... Uh, a jingle, it could be uh, a, a workplace area. Mm -hmm. What about the, the, the emotional part of it, where, where I'm stressed, I'm sad, mm -hmm. I eat? How does that fit into this as a cue? So there's actually a relatively large body of literature of the relationship of stress, overeating, and obesity. And I know that on other shows they've kind of discussed some of that, so I won't go too far into it, but essentially the stress system and cortisol system creates the same kind of arousal. Um, the thing that you're describing, if we were to talk about cue reactivity, it means that when you feel stressed, you eat. And so anytime you feel stressed, you have this urge to eat, even though you're not physically hungry. And again, I can use the couch example. You know, if you sit on the couch every night and eat a brownie at 10 o'clock and watch the news, the news becomes a cue, your couch becomes a cue, and the time 10 o'clock becomes a cue. Huh. That's really, it's so, it's so interesting to hear about it. So we, we know that these cues can be built in and set up. Uh, I'm picturing somebody who's got, now this has turned into a problem. It's a health problem for them. They're, they're, they're overeating too much. Their weight has gone up into the obesity range that you've talked about. How do you unring the bell? Mm -hmm. So that is a really good question. And so we've started down a line of research. So Pavlov's dog, if you don't remember, he um, rang a bell and would shoot a food pellet into the dog's mouth and the dog would salivate. Um, over time, after you paired that enough, you could ring the bell and the dog would just salivate, right? So how did you break that? Over time, what you do is you ring the bell enough and the salivation starts to go down. And so that's called extinction. 
Um, and some people also call it inhibitory training. And so what we're doing is potentially training that part of the brain that helps you resist things if you're doing inhibitory training. Oh, you've got to give me some examples. <laughs> <laughs> of course. So we've developed this um, program called Q-Exposure Food. And it's, um, it's adapted from a program that's been used in anxiety for more than 30 or 40 years. It's been used in substance abuse, but we're the first group to adapt it to food cues. So the way that we've set it up, and we've now done a series of studies, we have um, someone, just say you were a participant in our study, you would come in at one point and create a list of your eight most highly craved foods. Let's just use that as an example. Okay. And we'd go through them one by one. And each week or each time you came in, we would put the food in front of you and you would rate your craving or how much you want it. Um, from one to five, with five being you can't stand it, you absolutely have to have it, and one being uh, I, can, I can resist it. Gotcha. And so over time, you would look at the food and you would rate your craving, and then 30 seconds later, we'd ask you to pick it up and smell it, so you really got the feeling, and rate your craving. And then you would take a small taste, not a bite, a small taste, and you'd put the food down. And what we want you to do at that point is to pay attention to the food as much as you possibly can. And you rate your cravings every 30 seconds. Hmm. And what ends up happening pretty consistently right across the board, we've now done two studies with children and parents and uh, one with adults, um, is that cravings always go up at the beginning and they come down over time. And so learning how long that time is for you will help you get through the feelings of wanting to eat the brownie that's in front of you. So we do that with all of your eight foods. And over time, what happens is that you learn that you can, in fact, resist them. Some of your data showed that just by doing this Q-reactivity training, mm -hmm. you can impact a significant weight loss with yes. nothing else. We changing. have some weight loss. So not nearly as big as if you did a big um, like a physical activity and diet program and you'd reduced your diet. It's, it's not nearly that big yet, but we're working to expand it. But um, in our kids, we saw a reduction in BMI a small reduction in BMI. And in kids, that's actually a very big success. Yeah. <laughs> and for adults, our adults on average, we did a study with 28 overweight and obese binge eaters, and they lost an average of eight pounds, with the one who lost the most being 15 after um, 12 weeks. I mean, that, that's 15 pounds in 12 weeks, or even eight pounds in 12 weeks, mm -hmm. is, is without changing anything else, right? Yes. So there's no diet, there's no physical activity. So what ends up happening is that over time, if you can learn to rate your cravings and learn to not eat when you're not physically hungry, you end up reducing your caloric intake just by small amounts. So you don't need to skip out on foods or do any of that. You don't need to feel restrained. You just need to reduce what you're eating down by you know, whatever level calories help you lose weight. Many years ago, when we first started doing Health Matters show, we had Paul Saltman on, who was uh, a great uh, biologist and worked with creating the food pyramid, yep. et cetera. And he said to me, David, if, if I, can, I can get anybody to lose weight if I just told you you can only eat five foods. Pick any mm -hmm. food you want, chocolate, whipped cream, whatever you want, mm -hmm. because you would eventually extinguish your desire for yep. them and you would eat less. Yep. And, and you would slowly lose weight and it would, and it would work. And, and it's sort of fascinating to me to think about this in terms of, of just eating a little bit less. Yeah. And, and being able to control that without having to change your activity scales. And I imagine if you did change activity on top of it, it would be synergistic at some level. Well, hopefully you tell the NIH Review Committee because they just <laughs> submitted that grant. <laughs> but, but we think, you know, ultimately that teaching people to control what they're eating in an environment that's full of food cues. You know, today we have more food available than we did 40 years ago. And 
teaching them to control their responsivity to it might allow them to eat that tiny bit less that will allow them to either maintain weight or lose weight over time. I saw it written once that if we took someone from 200 years ago and we brought them into the present, it wouldn't be television and cell phones that would, that would blow their minds. It would be the supermarket. Probably. Because, because they, they, they had to grow their food. They had to work for their each meal. And to see it all just sitting there, yep. uh, that, that would be amazing. So, um, so we, have, we have people who are um, in your program and they're working on it. What can somebody at home do that doesn't, is not in your program? They're listening to the show. They're, they're having some of these issues. What can they do for themselves that they, they might be able to bring to their own lives? Mm-hmm. So I think um, there are a couple things that someone can do. And as part of our program, we also teach people to rate their hunger levels. So again, we never want anyone to go hungry, especially children. Um, But you never want them to be hungry, but you want them to stop eating when they're actually physically full. So learning first about hunger and fullness is one of the first pieces. And so it's pretty tricky because if you never feel hungry then you always feel full. You don't know what hunger feels like. So at some level, as part of your own exploration, you can start to try to skip meals and things and see what actual hunger feels like. I don't think people should do that consistently, but just to kind of reorient yourself to what it feels like to be hungry. Yeah, I think most Americans really aren't starving. No. And if you look at children in particular, like with my kids, I always had food in my purse. If they started to cry, you'd whip out a granola bar. You'd whip out some carrots or an apple or something. And they never really learned to feel hunger. And and it's uncomfortable. It's definitely uncomfortable. But um, just to learn to reorient yourself to what hunger and fullness feels like. And the fullness piece would be like after Thanksgiving dinner when you're like, oh, that's too much. You know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you lean back. So, so if you're a parent teaching your, you know, not even teaching, I mean, we're feeding our kids. Yeah. So effectively, even though intentionally or unintentionally, we are teaching them how to eat. Mm-hmm. What are good habits that we, just as a, a parent raising a kid, to prevent some of this from happening? Mm-hmm. Well, I think parents can think about this cue reactivity piece. <laughs> and they turn can, the TV off? I mean, well, yeah, like turn the TV off. But also one of the things we teach our families to do is to eat only in one spot so that the couch doesn't become a cue, so that the TV doesn't become a cue. If you eat only in one place, that place will become the cue to eating, and then the rest of the house doesn't. But what ends up happening to most people is they go into the cupboard, they take out the granola bars, they start eating one as they walk through the kitchen, they're cooking dinner, they go over here, watch some TV, eat something else, you know. So the whole area becomes a cue that might trigger overeating in someone that's vulnerable. So we start them off just by eating in one spot. And then secondly, I would take the food off the table, you know, and plate people out ahead of time and then um, slow meals down. So you're not trying to go too quickly because it takes a long it takes, you know, anywhere between 15, 20 minutes or so for right for the message to get from your stomach to your head. So when my kids do their prison eating style, Mm -hmm. you know, because they want to get to the table, they don't even know when they're full. They just keep eating because they never have time to feel sated. Yep. Their second brain, their stomach never sends message to their first brain. To so tell them that they're full. Slow down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, I promised I was going to ask you this, even though you didn't want me to particularly. But <laughs> I, I, I love watching The Biggest Loser. Yeah. I think it's like one of the great shows on TV because you watch people go uh, from heavy to thin. And um, it's something actually happens. And usually their health gets better, et cetera. But you had some concerns about that process as, as being misleading in some way. You know, they're losing weight. But, but what doesn't happen? Well, if you think about it from the environmental cue piece, what they do on that show is they take all the cues to overeat away. 
And so they take away the vending machines and the fast food and all those kinds of things. They're not even home anymore. Yeah, and they take them away. And then ultimately, people go back to that environment. And so one of the failures, I think, of diets just in general is that you tell people to avoid things that might make them overeat. And so that teaches this avoidance model, and you actually can't ever avoid all places to overeat. Right? People bring candy into work. They bring candy into schools. You know, you walk by a vending machine. You go to a restaurant. I mean, there's yeah. a menu. Yeah. <laughs> Here, how much food do you want? So as part of our programs, what we're trying to do is teach people to manage their overeating and to tolerate these feelings that might be uncomfortable instead of overeating. And so I think in, in The Biggest Loser, although it is a very fun show to watch and it's very emotional, at some level the, the participants end up going home back to the same environment with those same cues that they overate in in the first place. So I think they're, they're set up for failure unless they can learn to, to tolerate these feelings and be able to manage their home environment. So when are they hiring you as a consultant? <laughs> Maybe after this show. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, it, but it's an important uh, aspect of it because it makes it look like um, uh, if they just worked a little bit harder and did a little bit better, they, could, they would lose all their weight. And we know that when they go back, there's a significant number that gain weight back. When they go home. You know, honestly, I went into all of this thinking it was psychological, that it was behavioral. What's your right? background as a psychologist, yeah, right? Yeah, if you just exercise more and restrict your diet, you're going to be fine. And over time, what I've learned more and more is that so much of this is biologically driven and your brain does things before you even notice it, that it's very, very hard and complicated system. It's not just eating and exercise more. It's neuroendocrine systems. It's neurobiology. It's all these different hormones interacting and it's just very, very complicated. So this assessment that you just need to do more is actually not true. And, and it can be detrimental. Yeah, it can. And people end up feeling like losers in so many words because they can't stick to the diet. They start beating up on themselves. You know, I can tell you I, I have family friends who say, oh, I failed another diet. I just might as well quit and just be a fat person, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And it's not failure. It's your neurobiology tricking you into overeating. Well, and it, it, as you've talked about this, I've learned so much listening to you that so, so someone's dieting, mm -hmm. and, but what they don't realize is they have this whole cue system that's working against them, mm -hmm. that, that it's not just what they're eating, but every, everywhere they go, everything they do is cueing them to eat again. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's sort of the, the, the little devil on the shoulder that's constantly in their head that if they don't get rid of that, of course they're going to trip. And, and, and during this process. And if you feel, if you think about it, it's like something pecking at you. You know, there's all these cues kind of like building up on your back or in your shoulders. And then over time, you just give in. And once you give in, then you're like, oh, I shouldn't have ate that. And then it's hard to get back on. And then all of a sudden, you're gaining weight again. And it, 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 psychologically, it's really tough to lose and gain weight. It just does a number on someone. Yeah. I, and, and I've had little pieces of this. And I joked with you before, but it's really true that I will, at 10 o'clock, I will find myself standing up eating out of a bag of potato chips. And my wife will go, what are you doing? And I'll look down and I don't even realize mm -hmm. that it's another night where I've stood up and found the potato chips and I start eating them. Yeah, yeah. And so it's not a brownie I get, but I get potato chips at 10 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I don't, I mean, I think I'm relatively savvy and I don't even realize it's like sleepwalking. Mm -hmm. I described it as that I don't even know that I've done it. And that's on a small scale. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine how difficult it is for someone to battle that on a larger scale. 
Exactly. And the thing that I think you bring up that's really important to point out is that a lot of this cue reactivity is um, subconscious. You know, you don't necessarily recognize it. Maybe you don't remember walking to the closet and taking out those potato chips. You know, people often say, I don't know what happened. I sat down at the TV and next thing I know, I ate the whole box of chocolates. <laughs> you know, because they feel good and you like eating them and it makes you feel good and it gives you something to do. And there's lots of different reasons to do it. But it's all these cues kind of happening around you that your brain is kind of tricking you into overeating. And I think in some people who are apt to gain weight, and not everybody gains weight, they are just being tricked over and over again, and the biology keeps working against them. So um, do we need to change public policy? Ultimately, yes. So people say to me, oh, you're working on treating obesity. You know, why don't, you know, do you really think that this is going to be the cure-all for everyone? And I always say no. The cure-all is going to be policy. It's going to be changing the environment so that people don't have to fight this like they do now. It's just going to be a long road, kind of like we did with cigarettes. Right. And uh, you and I are both from the East Coast. Mayor Bloomberg was trying to change mm-hmm. in New York the size of the sodas. Yeah. And it sounds so patriarchal, you know, that we're going to tell people what to do. But if now if I think of it as a cue system with a giant cup sitting there, mm-hmm. you're cued to drink out of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's a, it's really undoing the psychological uh, aspects of this. I mean, is, is that one of the ways to do this? It is. Ultimately, if you weren't exposed to fast food, you'd never crave it, right? And, and people always say, I need chocolate. There is no spot in your brain that you that you were born with the taste um, of chocolate. I'm going to disagree on that. You, had you to, need chocolate. <laughs> you, you learned it over time. And so this I need chocolate business is the wanting, the craving that we were talking about. And so it's really, really tricky. But you're not, you don't actually need anything except for to have enough nutrients in order to grow and, and sustain your life. So when we talk about public policy, maybe it's how we advertise the food, uh, not, not limit choices to the public, but but like cigarettes, they're not advertised anymore. Yep. You don't see the Marlboro Man walking around anymore. Yeah, I think there's going to be a lot of policies. New York has made a lot of strides in the right direction. Um, it's going to be a long road for New York, too. But they, it's kind of could be the test. You know, there's a lot of test ba- beds in the U.S. which are trying to change things. There's a um, town in Massachusetts named Somerville that did a whole child obesity prevention. They redid their whole town and they made it more walkable and they did all these things. I mean, it's going to have to be big level policy to change the obesity epidemic. Um, But in the meantime, we're going to try to understand the neurobiology and try to create treatments to help people that have ultimately been tricked this long. You've really made me think about this differently because I have to tell you that sort of that nanny state concept bothered me. But now what I see it as is is countering these intentional cues that are out there uh, and and sort of leveling the playing field, if you will, to give people a chance to, to battle those cues. And that's a different way mindset when you talk about it. Yeah, and a lot of people who are trying to lose weight, they talk about willpower, right? There is no such thing as willpower. It's the amount you can resist things. And ultimately, over time, if you think about it like a thermometer, um, you might have a bigger resistance at the beginning when you first start your diet. And over time, the environment kind of pecks away at it. And these cues trigger your motivational wanting, and it becomes hard to resist. And so the thermometer goes down. It's fascinating. I mean, it's, it's really a different way of looking at this uh, and from both a policy and a science standpoint that I am so glad you're out there doing. Oh, thank you. I just I, I hope that, you know, some people watch it and they realize that it's not their fault and it's not that they don't have the willpower or the strength that other people do. It's that they're just set up differently. 
and, and that there are things that they can do and not, not to feel bad about it, but to understand it and move forward. Yeah, it's kind of like if you had another, you know, a disease like diabetes, right? Nobody ever blames a diabetic for needing to check their glucose. Um, you shouldn't blame people that gain weight. It's their, again, their biology kind of tricking them in the current environment. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about this topic today and for all the work that you're doing. Thanks. And good luck with the NIH <laughs> grant as well. Well, I hope everybody's been listening carefully. We say it all the time here on Health Matters that knowledge is power, and I can't think of a show that we've ever done where that was more important than the one you just heard. Understanding the role that these cues play in how you eat and why you eat could be the difference between you changing your life and not. So take-home message, pay attention to some of these things, Maybe you need to find an expert who can help you like we've heard today, but either way, you can make a difference if you understand what's going on. I'm Dr. David Granite, and we look forward to seeing you again next time right here on Health Matters. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.